Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Themris Khan. Themris Khan is an independent development professional and researcher with over 25 years of practitioner and policy-based experience in international development, aid effectiveness, gender, and global migration. She has worked with a vast spectrum of multilateral and bilateral organizations, INGOs, and civil society organizations in Pakistan, Canada, and South Asia, and has a number of publications and articles to her credit. She has just published and co-edited the book, White Saverism in International Development, Theories, Practices, and Lived Experiences. She blogs, speaks, and writes actively on notions of decolonization, North-South power imbalances and development, race relations, and immigrant citizenship and integration. She lives in Pakistan, even though we're talking and she's currently in Canada. <laughs> so welcome to the show. How are you? Fine. Thanks, Philip. We're really happy to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Looking forward to a conversation. Absolutely. You know, I came across your work via the book, a collection of work and ideas and, and theory, primarily, I think I'm going to say primarily from the global south. I'm sure not every author might live or reside in the global south. The intent and, and thought process is there. And I knew instantly that I wanted to spend time with you and kind of go through the ideas of the book, particularly coming out of COVID, out in the quotations, um, existing in a space where there is constant turmoil and conflict, particularly around the movement of humans from one place to another, borders and all of these things. It seemed like this is a conversation that is both particularly timely, but also very evergreen in a certain regard. So I guess the best place to do is start from the obvious beginning, right? Which is to, you know, get a better sense of why yourself and, and your co-editors decided to take on this notion of white saviorism. Well, Philip, I think the notion of white saviorism, and for I think the longest time, it was just a notion because it's not a term you, I've been in development for over 25 years. I have only fleetingly ever come across this term throughout my career. And it never rang any alarm bells over the years, right? So it was something that was out of mind for many, many years. And I think development uh, practice even never, even though it openly implemented that concept, we never ever actually acknowledged it or spoke about it as a thing. So I think it, it was brushed under the carpet for a very, very long time. And uh, eventually my co-editors and myself just uh, decided that this is a topic, particularly in the field of international development, that needs to be spoken more about. Because what is international development in its current form? It is people, individuals, and organizations based in the so-called global north, which is white and Western, coming into countries of the so-called global south, which is non-white and non-Western, and in a way telling us what to do and how to live our lives, primarily because they are paying for it. And how are they paying for it? They're paying for it through aid assistance, humanitarian assistance, political patronages, political power, and, and just overall, I guess, geopolitical relations between uh, poorer countries and rich countries. So it is this notion that has shaped the entire world of international aid assistance. And that's very bluntly put, white saviorism, because the attitude that a lot of these donors, individuals, and organizations come with is the fact that everybody in the rest of the world is unable to look after themselves and therefore needs saving. Nobody says it in exactly those words, but that is the ethos and the attitude behind the objectives of why aid is provided to a, a number of countries in the so-called Global South by the so-called Global North, and the way that aid is implemented eventually. 
So it the white saviorism runs through literally the entire modalities of aid. So that's why we felt it was important to talk about it now, uh, especially after all the discussions in the last few years about anti-racism and colonial power and post-colonial uh, societies, etc. So that's how we came uh, about it. And our decision was that we don't want to hear from people who've been talking about this in the global north all their lives. We want to know the impact that this concept has had on the people it has been imposed on, which means people in the so-called global south. So that's how we came across it. And our conscious decision was to focus the voices of those development practitioners, academics, and activists who have to go through and endure uh, white saviorism in their careers. You know, when I was you know, going through the book and, and reading from the various contributors, and you have a litany of thinkers and practitioners and experts that have been selected and chosen to take part in the project. And the book is very, also very highly organized. Like these are like all the little things that I like love to like notice about like putting a project together, right? I think because particularly for a work like this, what I find that's helpful to people like myself, who is a, a, a reader, is that you can literally jump in anywhere in the book. Yes, you can read it cover to cover, like a beach read if you want, <laughs> or you can kind of put it together in a way where if there's a particular section that you care about, you can dive into that. If there's a particular essay you want to read, you can you can go into that. So I think the structure also matters. And as I was going through all of these different sections, I did a bit of jumping around myself. What was really interesting to me, or I guess maybe intimidating, is just how tangled all of this system really is. So you talk about and raise this term going beyond white savior, the white savior industrial complex, which is credited often in the book to um, Teju Cole. So I'll continue to give him the credit for <laughs> kind of coining the term. And I want to give you an opportunity to talk through that as an extension of white saviorism as a as a concept. Sure, you're very right. Teju Cole was the key inspiration behind this book because it was him in his 20, 2012 um, Atlantic article that who actually sort of brought about this term, which came onto the mainstream, because before that, people really didn't know what to call it. So absolutely, that's that's the inspiration uh, behind the book. And a lot of our authors uh, constantly also do refer to him. I think I'd like to start perhaps with putting this in context with a little bit of my own personal experience in, in the sector. So I've been working in Pakistan in this sector since the 1990s, right? And that was the decade of development and the millennium de development goals and, you know, donor funding, quote unquote. We didn't have global South, global North in those days. It was developed in developing countries. I mean, that's the other thing. The terminology has also taken so many twists and turns around uh, over time. So those were the days where it was assumed that development and social development in every country in the developing world, quote unquote, can only be done by those who know more about it, which is those who live in the global north. And every theory of development, participatory development, uh, field work, all these terms were all coined by theorists living in the global north. And I remember I had I studied in Canada. I did my undergraduate degree in Canada in um, global development. And all I studied were white Western authors. Yet the case studies and examples being used were all those in Africa and South Asia. And in those days, there was no real connection. The connection made was this is just how it is. This is very normal and natural. And that's the impression and attitude that I came out with out of that program when I moved back to Pakistan. I said, yes, this is the way we need to do development. And all the NGOs that I worked with in Pakistan all had international donors as their funders. All the programs were being designed and implemented according to what the donors expected us to do. And it was the most natural and normal thing in that area, in that sector. And realizing over time how much people like myself were perpetuating issues like inequality, racism, cultural imbalance, lack of context, completely different uh, political ethos. 
was amazing. I did not in my 20, 25 years of implementation, I think even once realized that what I was doing was so far removed from the realities of my own country that I was blindly just doing what I thought I was. I should be doing. This is the right thing to do it. This is how the sector actually brainwashes you. And it was only much later when conversations overall about issues like racism and inequality and global geopolitics started becoming more prominent and vocal, primarily because that's the way the world was going. You know, 9-11 happened, things changed. People started talking about war and about inequality and about North and South. That's when I think the realization started to sink in that something is wrong here. What we're doing is not right. And nobody in those days was willing to listen. Like you were literally shut down if you tried to say something that says, okay, maybe this project should not be going in this direction. It should be going in the other direction. And you were literally shut down. And so that eventually, I think, has taken its toll on most people like myself. So I quit the sector a few years ago. I said, I'm not doing this anymore. I cannot be subservient in other society, another culture, another way of working, which is completely opposite to my own. And I think the biggest realization was that in the 30 years almost that I had been in development, absolutely nothing had changed in my country. Things had gone from bad to worse. So all this credit that uh, international agencies like to take about changing the world, it's just rhetoric. Very little has changed. It may have changed in pockets, but that's not what you want. Change must be societal, must be institutional. Can't be in tiny little communities, you know, just randomly spread out over a geographical area. So I think that's also the message that many of the authors in the book have been able to articulate through their own personal experiences like myself. And I think that is the realization that the sector is trying to now come to grips with said, okay, so people don't really like us as much as we thought we did. And why is that? And that's only because voices exactly like those in the book of our practitioners, of our academics, of our activists from all over the the global South. And that was a very conscious decision on our behalf that we will not accept any white saviors themselves as authors in this book anyone but them. And you'd be surprised we actually got proposals from white saviors saying that they also wanted to contribute. So that's just, you know, just tells you a little bit about how people still think. They're still not ready to accept that, you know, there's a host, a slew of other people out there who actually know as much, if not more than you, about themselves. So I think those are the messages that the book tries to put out in the sense that so much knowledge so much awareness about our own selves and about our own development has been subjected to oppression. You know, we've been subjected to being oppressed and our thoughts being suppressed. And I think it's time all that came out. And I, I mean, we hope that the book is just a first step in bringing those voices out so that people realize that no, everything is not right. And no, you guys are not doing everything right as you think you have all these decades. You know, I found myself getting like increasingly frustrated too as I read through the book, right? Because I do not work in development. There's really not a strong but to that other than to say, I think in the work that I do, it comes up, right? Like these issues, I think even if you're not someone who works in development, if you live and work in a city like New York, any kind of major city, What I've found that's interesting is that the notion of development slash philanthropy slash, you know, kind of political awareness, all in my experience run through like social circles, right? So when you referenced in the book, there's an essay that discusses very briefly, like Coney, for example, right? This this famous case about these folks getting together to fight (laughs) this brutal warlord in, in, in Africa, right? And I remember the Coney thing so clearly for a couple of reasons. One, there was a huge party here in New York where this group of folks, you know, that, you know, in that social scene at that time was tangentially related to, were doing this big fundraiser 
all to fight and raise money for like Coney, right? So they were showing like the, there was like a film that went viral and then they made these like whistles. Like they, so they were selling like these whistles and the whistles were meant to like signify some bullshit, right? And this was like a whole thing. And it was also very early in like Twitter, right? So it's like one of those Twitter moments that was before it became kind of like the Twitter that everybody kind of now knows. So again, my my references are from that, right? That so many of these folks live and move and get oxygen for their way of thinking through like these social mechanisms, right? The New York charity ball scene, right? The fundraiser scene and all these kind of things. So I reference that to say that a lot of these people will say, well, isn't it better for me to do something rather than nothing, right? Like you hear that a lot. Like when you confront folks with the obvious sort of gaps, then they'll say like, isn't it better that we did we did something? Like, didn't that $50 mean more than if I'd not given it at all? Why are you a hater, right? Like it becomes like, you're just hating on like their good intention, right? So I wanted to get your thoughts on the psychology of this. Right. Because I find beyond the actual legal, political and real economic structure of this on a base level, we're kind of talking about people's feelings. Right. And how they project themselves into the world. Right. So I'm, I'm curious about your thoughts around the psychology of the white savior. Yeah, that's really interesting because it is all about psychology in many ways. Right. And this whole idea of saviorism, okay, let's just leave the color out of it for now, exists, I think, everywhere in the world. And that has to do with, I think, wealth and class. So there is this notion in our minds everywhere that if you are better off than others, you need to do something for the less better off, right? And that is the notion of charity and philanthropy. So that is, I think, less of a it's less of an issue in those contexts because that sort of help is human nature. We, I think, instinctively want to help those who are less fortunate than us. And I think that's a very good instinct to have. The issue is when that instinct is institutionalized in a structure that is inherently unequal. So you talk about the aid industry and the aid industry's entire ethos is doing good right? For those less fortunate. But it's not about just one person giving $50 to a charity somewhere out in the world, right? It's about a government using tax dollars under a particular modality and structure that has been institutionalized with the thought that this is money that we are giving to others and they should be thankful to us for that. And there is something in return that we need to get from it, right? So the whole World Bank, you know, the IFIs, that's all the whole idea of loans, even that people think is doing good is not. They're expecting to be paid back. And it's the same thing in international aid. There is an expectation that the people who provide taxes to fund these projects and all will get something back in return, which is a fantastic success story, even though it's a miserable failure on the ground, but it's going to be shown as a success story. So that's the difference between the whole charity and philanthropic industry, which is all about giving and should continue to be. And that psychology, as long as it's not driven by an institutional power, is okay. Like, I want to give to the earthquake in Turkey as an individual. I want to give to the floods in Pakistan as an individual, and I have, and that ethos is fine. The issue is who are you giving the money to? Are you giving the money to literally a white savior, like a international NGO that says we will go and save children in Africa? That is where the problem starts. But if you want to give to a charity, an African charity in Africa, that's completely different because you're giving the money into the right hands, directly into the hands of those people who belong to that country, as opposed to another white intermediary sitting in your country and saying, oh, I'm going to go to that other country and I'm going to use your money to help those people. So I, that's how I see the difference in psychology, how giving has been weaponized and institutionalized by a lot of organizations who want to make the most of this psychology that we have, that we want to give and we want to help the less fortunate. So I think that's where we run into 
problematics when we're talking about psychology. Otherwise, giving is fantastic. You must, I give as a charity all the time. I mean, I, I come from an Islamic society where giving is part of our religious identity. But who are we giving to? We're making sure that we give to people. Our money goes directly to the source. I agree, you know, in whole with the notion of giving. But I also think that the core of some things is you talked about like saving, right? Like we're saving folks. It's like who is doing the saving and who is being saved, right? I feel it's almost impossible to take race out of that equation, right? Because the mentality is always that those who are being saved or are in need of saving are those who primarily are not white. <laughs> right. And to the extent that we're saving is some white person's largesse. Right. And that's where I get frustrated with the in entangled piece. Right. Because I agree with you. I think, yes, you can give your money to that local charity. Right. But I think when we're really getting the honest about people's perception, they don't think that to the extent that they're going to do the work to find a local charity, they don't really trust the local charity, right? Like on some level, they either think, hmm, if I give it to those people, like we're, you know, they start to ask those questions that are to me very insidious, right? Like, well, how do I know it's going to get into the right hands? And I'm not really 100%, I can't really do a full background check on them, right? And then, so they write the check to like the Red Cross, right? And I think the Red Cross has, has been a well-documented grifter organization, right? Like their CEO has paid millions of dollars. They've literally stolen money. People that work for the Red Cross on the ground have, like, you know, they are abusive. But no one blinks when it comes to giving money to the Red Cross. But if I say, oh, like, there's a local thing, they're going to run through so much diligence, it doesn't really make any sense, right? So I think the psychology... It's weird because it permeates so many things, right? Like I, I remember, you know, I grew up in New York, you know, my family's West Indian and they don't show these commercials as much anymore, but they, they used to have the like for, you know, for 10 cents a day, for the price of a cup of coffee, you can save a child's life, right? And it's, that child is never from Mississippi or Appalachia and white, right? Even though if you look at America, like recent America, they're like things like ringworm are coming. Like, you know, America is coming like dysentery. Like these things are common here now, right? So those are the kind of things that I'm curious about, right? Like it's never, oh man, what are we going to do about those folks in West Virginia? It's like, what are we going to do about those folks in Kenya <laughs> or something like that, right? But that's exactly it. That is the impression that people in the West have been given, that they are perfectly fine and there's nothing wrong with them. And it's everybody else who has the problem, right? And that is what the institutionalization of the psychology does. It tells you that you need to help everybody else because you're perfectly fine. You don't need to be helped at all, right? And we know from the examples you've given, and there are several others out there, that that's not true. My question always is to the uh, organizations that I work with, is like, what are you doing in your own country, for instance, right? You have homelessness, you have crime, you have poverty. In Canada, we have the issue of indigenous populations, completely deprived uh, and set apart. So what are you doing for any of that, for all of them? Oh, that's the government's responsibility. And, you know, they take care of them. You know, we, uh, we have our hands free to do other things, for instance. But that is exactly the core of it, the, the ethos and the objectives behind setting up these organizations like Oxfam and Save the Children were always because they wanted to go outside their country, because they felt that after World War II, everybody else sort of fell apart, the rest of the world fell apart, and they, they were fine. And, but why was that? That's because you plundered the riches of the world, right? So the idea of colonialism and post-colonialism is a dichotomy in the sense you plunder the world to make yourself better off. Now you want to go back and help the ones you robbed, which is not the way they see it. They just see it as, oh my God, we got out of the war all pretty okay and a lot of people didn't. So let's go back and see what we can do for them. But for me, I keep coming back to this idea of institutionalization. It is this whole idea of the Red Cross as a massive global institution that is what comforts people. But it's that global institution that is now so systemically in 
unequal, so systemically racist, so systemically colonial, that it's actually creating more harm than doing good. But it's easy for people to give to them as opposed to the charity down the street, just because people just don't want to think anymore. They don't want to work anymore. But I think that's turning the tables because poverty in this part of the world is increasing by leaps and bounds. Homelessness is increasing. Racism is increasing. I mean, look at the amount of gun shootings in the U.S. in this year alone. I mean, you blame us for being, quote unquote, if I'm allowed to use that word online, terrorists. But look at how people are behaving here. So it's this dichotomy that people are not, I think, ready to accept that everybody is as good off or as worse off as the person next to you. And I, I don't think you can you can use it like we have in our book. We also speak about brown saviors, right, and black saviors. So those are the people who have grown up in a white environment but are non-white, but they imbue that same sense of superiority that their white counterparts have. And they go back into brown countries. I've had brown Pakistanis who've lived abroad their entire life and come back to Pakistan and behave exactly like white people do. And it's like, no, I'm sorry, you're not the brown person that you think you are. I'm a very different brown person than you are. So please don't think that you know me or you know my country or you know no country. So, you know, there is a lot of dichotomy and, and, and the idea of race and identity has also fed into that a lot as well, right? I mean, the idea of a diaspora overseas, a non-white diaspora, does want to give back to its country of origin, but at the same time, they also have their homeland, which is probably needs as much of their help as their country of origin does, which they've probably never been to in the last 15, 20 years as well. So I think identity, race, power, institutionalization, all these things have really cluttered the scenario of how we do good and how we view doing good. And we really need to unpack that and really sit down and think, okay, what is it that we're doing? And we're doing that in the so-called global South ourselves because our systems of giving have been around for centuries. It's part of our cultural context. Whereas in the North, it's a completely different mindset altogether. So I think there needs to be a lot of thinking being done in the global North about why people think they should give and who they should give to. And in the global South, we have our own set systems of giving, which doesn't, which actually don't leave the country. It stays in the country. So maybe observe those systems and see how they're working and do the same in yours. I mean, there's so many awesome points in there, right? And, you know, we, we do wrestle with these ideas of identity and, and who we are and our place in the world. You know, I, I have ideas about places that where my family is from, right? But I am of those places, but not from those places, right? And so you have to challenge yourself with your notion of, you know, I use this term a lot, like not, not parachuting in, thinking that you can solve problems, right? But I think there are, are there often good intentions, right? So I want to talk about that, but that balance, right? Impact versus intention, right? This is a, this comes up quite often in the book, right? How do we sort of challenge ourselves to weigh in on those issues when we might not be the best voices, but perhaps there's resources, right? Or there might be some knowledge, but maybe not total knowledge, right? To the extent that anyone even has that, right? So these are things that I think that people wrestle with all the time, right? While also recognizing to your point, some of these black and brown folks, like, you know, we say coloring always your kind, right? Like, like some folks are very, very invested in the current power structures. They just kind of want to be on top <laughs> of those power structures. They're not really interested in changing the power structure, right? So again, you know, that that impact versus intention, you know, how do we how do we start to carve space in that? In with those two realities? I think my impact is a very, very, I call it a dirty word, okay? Primarily because what is impact? What context are we looking at impact? Impact of what, on what, and why, right? So a very quickly, an example in the development sector, it is all about impact, right? 
And impact is the how many people, quote unquote, benefited from the project that you implemented, right? Whether it's, a, let's say, it's you put in a water and sanitation project or you immunized X number of kids or what have you, or you opened 10 schools in a village. But impact, the way I see it holistically, is something that is much larger than how it benefits a small, random little community. It is about how attitudes and ideas towards things change over time and how that benefits a nation as a whole. So I look at things nationally as opposed to just community-wise, which is very a very popular notion of looking at impact, right? How has that country changed over years, over time? Has it provided its is it a true democracy? I mean, in this day and age, we don't even know what a democracy is anymore, right? It's just completely changed meaning uh, overnight. How do we know that a country is self-sufficient in providing its citizens all the social services that a country is meant to provide? Education, healthcare, income, security, et cetera, et cetera. How do we know that a country has good relations with its neighbors and is not going to go to war anytime soon? How do we know that a country is allocating the right amount of resources to the right amount, to the right priorities for itself at that time? For me, that is impact. And that's not how I think any of us look at impact. And intention is something completely different. I think a lot of us, most of us, in fact, start our lives with good intentions. We don't mean to go into anything creating with the intention that we want to do harm, unless you're a warmonger. That's a different issue altogether. And there are a lot of us out there too, believe me. But nobody goes in with the intention that we're going to go in and completely destroy a community, right? So I think the intentions are good. It's what the objective of that intention is. If it's a short-term goal that we just want to see how many children are able to go to school, that's not going to get you anywhere or that country anywhere in the long run. But if you want to say that we want to normalize trade relations between two uh, countries because it's good for us and it's good for them, and overall it'll be good for others if they see this happening, then that is a good intention that you need to take forward, which can go to scale and can have the impact, the global impact that we're looking for. So that's how I define impact versus intention. And I think, again, I'll come back again to the institutionalization of resources as creating that sort of a gray area between intention and impact. And I think we've distanced ourselves from the idea of intention and what we actually mean to do in the long run. Also, everything's become so short-termized now, you know, the next few years. You, know, you want to look really long-term. So that's, that, that's one thing uh, that I'd like to say. The other thing that I'd like to say is the idea of impact and intention and inequality exists everywhere. So it's not just an issue of what the very white and privileged so-called global north is trying to do for the you know, non-white so-called global south. I think within the so-called global south, there is a completely different dynamic happening. There is a completely different set of power relations and structures that are as unequal as the north-south inequality. And there are many countries that are not happy with each other within that region, and that there are many countries that are happy with each other. There are many countries that are doing very well on uh, lines that they choose to do on, and there are many countries that are not. So I think looking at the world through these dichotomies is not helping us at all. I think we need to, everybody needs to come on a level playing field. We all need to see each other as, you know, we're independent. We're not autonomous and we're self-sufficient regions and countries. We don't fall in this two-block category, which makes absolutely no sense at all. We have problems, you have problems. We have good intentions, you have good intentions. We have bad intentions, you have bad intentions, right? But when we look at everything through North versus South, Black versus White, White versus non-White, Brown versus Black, there's that as well. Muslim versus non-Muslim, Arab versus non-Arab, you know, there's all that dichotomy ha happening there as well, which is creating so much complexity in how we want to work with each other that it's becoming impossible even for us within the global South to work with each other because we have our own issues that we have never had the chance to sort out. Look at India and Pakistan. Look at South Asia as a region. We're not coherent. We can't work together. We're loggerheads with each other all the time. 
And that brings up a really interesting point. I hadn't thought about this, but, you know, I guess maybe tangentially, but, (laughs) you know, you surfaced like, again, like a ton of really, really interesting stuff. And I want to try to pull some of it apart without losing like the central thread in there, right? Because I think, yes, these distinctions are meant to flatten, right? So global north, global south, the Western world versus the non-Western world, you know, the industrialized world versus the emerging world, all, all of these are kind of like terms, right? But even within those terms, I think we have like a good sense of like, what, right? Like the terms, they change, but you know, New York ain't in the emerging world, right? Like that's a fair statement that no one's thinking that, right? But they might think like Burkina Faso is, right? Like, even though they don't know shit about there, right? So as we kind of go through that language, right, go through that vocabulary, I'm curious about those sort of more complex distinctions that you started to get into, right? Because I was saying, again, I'm going to simplify because I'm not going through a whole foreign affairs report here. (laughs) But, you know, China is for many places within Africa, within the Caribbean. Like I said, my mom's from Barbados. I was talking to some folks from Barbados and they were like, oh, yeah, we just had like a huge Chinese delegation come in and they're investing in this thing. And, you know, like I see the way in which a China is spending money for, you know, their sort of, they have a term for it. They're sort of like industrial kind of projects. And it doesn't feel that dissimilar to the original European colonialism, right? They might not have like the boots on the ground in the way like the British empire used to. It had a whole magistrate system and governors and all that kind of stuff. It's not the same thing, but it feels to me (laughs) very much like the same thing, right? Like they need resources, cobalt and all this stuff from Africa. And so they're like, hey, you want to build an airport? Here's $200 million or or whatever it is. Oh, you want to build a railroad from one town to another? We'll come in there and like underwrite that check and we'll send Chinese engineers and we'll do the whole thing. And then they'd be racist as fuck, right? So it's like, but people would look at that and say, oh, they're not the Western world, right? They're, but they're not in the global North. And it, it's not in my intention. I'm not trying to create a new enemy here, but I'm, what I'm saying is that some of these alignments aren't about geography, right? They're about global perspective. And I don't know if like Biden, Putin, you know, Chinese premier, whose name I can't think of right now, you know, they kind of probably all have the same notion of their country being on top. And everything else just and and the mechanisms on which to do that sometimes can be can look like military or they can look like development. Right. In the same way, JFK started the Peace Corps. Right. Good intentions. But a lot of that was, hey, let's just evangelize Americanism. Right. And send a lot of like college kids out to like boost America and, and during the Cold War. Right. So I'm talking a lot, but I'm, what I'm, you, you get what I'm trying to get at. Right. Like, how do we like start to pull those types of relationships apart while also not trying to just point the finger, right? Because I'm also not interested in doing that. I think my answer to that, and I get that a lot as well, right? So this whole neo-colonialism of China coming in, India coming in, there's Russia, right? There are new countries that are now mimicking the old colonials of yesteryears, right? And in one way that is true, in another way it is not. And The difference there, I think, between the past colonial rule and what a lot of people are currently calling, you know, the new colonial rule is, I think, for me, political independence. Every country that right now is being, let's say, quote unquote, supported by China, let's take it, right? And Pakistan's one of them. They've got massive projects uh, running in, in Pakistan. And is that we are in autonomous, independent country, right? We have our own government. And whatever is happening is happening with the agreement of our government. You can say there the intentions of that agreement are wrong or the modalities of that agreement are wrong. You can argue that and to a large extent it might be true. 
But at the end of the day, it's not a forcible, a forced agreement as perhaps colonialism was, where there was a complete invasion and a takeover in many cases, and people didn't have, they couldn't do anything, they couldn't withstand it. And it was only a very violent resistance that was able to get rid of the colonizer. We're not in that situation anymore. It's now politics and geopolitics that dictates all our decision-making. So in that sense, I would see the difference as there being some level of power for a country that is receiving support from, let's say, China to say, no, I understand it's not as easy as that. There's a lot more detail in that. And most people can't say no. But I think that is that difference that you've got citizens in a country that can resist that as well. They can resist their own government. They may not resist the Chinese, but they can raise their voice and tell their own government, look, we're not happy with this sort of an agreement. We don't want this money coming into our country because we think it's coming, it's wrong, or it's not actually going to help us, or it's only for a privileged few, et cetera, what have you. And I think it's those resistance movements that we're seeing in a lot of countries that are coming up against their own government. I think that's the difference. There, Everybody is now seeing their government as the oppressor and their government making decisions that are not beneficial for their own country, as opposed to resisting the colonizer in the colonial days and getting rid of the external presence altogether. So I think there is that power now that citizens do have in independent countries, and that's the power we need to be tapping into. It's the whole anti-aid movement, for instance, is coming from our people. It's not coming from the government, but it's coming from our people to our government saying you cannot function and operate like this anymore because it is not helping us. And that pressure on our governments by our own people is what ultimately is going to be the last nail in the coffin. Now, that's a long time in coming because citizens aren't as powerful in countries like mine as we would like to be. But I think that is the way forward for us. It's our own people making our own decisions and telling our government, you guys are doing it wrong. Forget about it. We don't have any say to the outside power. They're not our problem. You're our problem. You're the ones making these decisions. So don't. So I think that's the difference between seeing how now new political powers are trying to come in and control different parts of the world, again, for their own benefits, which is the model is similar. But I think the resistance model is very dissimilar to what it was as well. And that's what my faith is in. My faith is in in those local national resistance movements that I see even in my country now that I hadn't seen, you know, 20 years ago. Suddenly they're coming up. People are raising their voice, which is, I think, exactly what democracy is all about. It's not about voting. It's about making sure that the state listens to your voice and acts on it. So that would be my response to this. And in terms of other countries like, you know, the US and Europe and China and, you know, even India or Russia wanting to obviously take over the world, there will always be a much more powerful and resource-rich country in the world that will want to take over the others. Always. I think that's, that's human nature. That's our society. Even within you know, the developing world, even within South Asia, we have one country is that is much more powerful resource-wise and politically than the other countries of that region. So you will have that everywhere. But that's a matter of how we deal with a lot of things within each other's countries and how we respond to those. So I think that's what we need to be looking at and focusing on. We need to be focusing on a lot of internal issues and dialogue between us and our states as opposed to worrying about, you know, what everybody else outside is doing, they're going to be doing that anyway. If it's not our country, it's going to be another one. You know, so let's see what our country can do. And and that's another interesting point that I want to, to take on a little bit, which is this idea of autonomy and being self-sufficient. Because, you know, this word has kind of become the unofficial theme of this year's show after I kicked off this year with a conversation with a, a good friend of the show and a good friend of mine. Indy Johar and we talk. That's how we start every season of this show with a conversation with him. And as he and I meandered, this 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 word entangled kind of came up in our conversation. And since then, it's kind of been a running theme for me. And yes, understanding that we are autonomous, we're weirdly autonomous. We're also connected, right? I, I think COVID is an obvious example of that, right? Like there was no nation self sufficient enough to not have to deal with 
COVID at some point, right? Like their responses were obviously vastly different from one place to another, but COVID touched everybody, regardless of your borders, regardless of your foreign policy, regardless of your resources, regardless of all those things. And so I think it is a useful metaphor in that respect to speak to how entangled we truly are, right? Climate is another good example, right? Like the manifestations might look different from one place to another, right? Massive flooding in Pakistan, right? Massive drought in the United States, right? Other places dealing with their conditions, right? But the entangled notion is that climate crisis is here. And so what Ukraine military situation affects wheat everywhere, right? All these things, right? We see more and more migratory movements for people due to climate rising exponentially, right? So how do we wrestle again with that, those kind of, again, those dualities, right? That we are autonomous nations with all the things that you highlighted so perfectly, advantages, disadvantages, national interests, talents, challenges, all this stuff, while also living in a complex and what I would argue entangled structure of the planet, right? I mean, that's really interesting that you bring up the COVID example. And I was just speaking to some uh, colleagues yesterday about this, about the interdependency of countries on, let's say, you know, the United Nations to come in and support countries during time of crisis. And during COVID, just like during war, everybody sort of shut down and left, right? So one country was unable to help another country because borders shut down, Nothing was coming in or out. Resources were stuck in one place. And and we saw that COVID, yes, did affect everybody. But what COVID also did, that it did show exactly that level of autonomy that I was talking about, that every country somehow or the other, good or bad, survived on its own. We didn't have access to vaccines in Pakistan through uh, through COVAX. We had to rely on our neighbors to give us vaccines. We didn't care. We just wanted vaccines. Didn't matter to us who was giving it to us. But we were consciously blocked by a large swath of the privileged world uh, and not allowed access to vaccines in time. But somebody else did come to our aid and provide us with the vaccines. During COVID, we as a country, we managed. We created our own protocols. They were not the best, perhaps, doesn't matter, but we did it. We created our own emergency systems and commissions to to manage COVID. So all to say that, you know, that autonomy does work. The idea that autonomy is only if you have somebody, you know, good in power or in leadership is a fallacy. When countries need to come together during a time of crisis, they come together on their own pretty damn well. It is everybody else who runs away. I mean, you're seeing what happened in Afghanistan. See what happened in, is what's happening in Sudan right now. The minute, you know, a bullet is fired, everybody's out. And everybody of that country is left to their devices. So where is that sort of solidarity and, you know, doing good and the good intentions that you're talking about when at the first sign of trouble, you're out the door and doesn't matter who you leave behind, right? So that is where then the country itself steps up and demonstrates its autonomy in the hardest condition possible. During the Pakistan floods, nobody came to our help. Everybody wanted to show off and went on these helicopter rides on to you know view the flooded areas. But how much actual help did we get on the ground? Nothing. It was us doing it. I was involved in collecting donations and giving it to local organizations. I knew we're working on the ground. At that point, it didn't matter how legitimate they were. I knew help needed to get through, so it got through. The UN system didn't really uh, come into place. We did whatever we could on our own. So that autonomy does exist. And this, this assumption that we, in a time of crisis, will just fall apart because we don't have the ability to function on our own, we need an external savior to come in, is completely, no, it's, it's wrong, just doesn't exist. So there is there is a lot in countries autonomy that is still very much effectively uh, you know possible for us to work within our own existing systems however weak or bad or mismanaged or badly governed they may be there is still a system that exists there and no one has a monopoly on mismanagement 
one. No, no, no. From east to west, north to south. Yeah, that is, <laughs> that is, I think politics is all about mismanagement, if you ask oh, me, man. anywhere in the world. <laughs> That's where the grift comes in. <laughs> <laughs> right, like the more the more mismanagement, the easier it is for the the money to just sort of end up in the ether in the wrong hands. Even yeah. as I drive around New York City, I swear to God, I've been seeing them rip up the same street over and over and over again. I'm like, didn't y'all just rip the street up eighteen months ago? Like that's the griff, right? Somebody rips it up and somebody exactly. paves it, then they start all over again, and somewhere somebody's like, ah, that's a good project. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Very much so. And the more money you have, the more, I guess, leeway you feel you have to uh, to mismanage it. You know, if you don't have enough money, then you're very careful about how you spend it. But the more money you have, the more you can say, mm, maybe I can just, you know, move this little bit into that area and, you know, or move this little bit into there and there your entire objective is down the drain, you know. The bigger the numbers, the easier it is to obscure. Because after a while, the numbers become so big, it's almost like monopoly money. Like it becomes so huge that what difference does it make, right? Like 50 grand falls out of a $3 million project. No one notices that. <laughs> you know, that's the whole argument that I have. Like there is uh, in the UK and now in Canada, the government has decreased the uh, international aid assistance budget in the UK a few years ago and recently in Canada as well in this year's budget, right? And, you know, civil society in these two countries are going mad saying, no, how can you do that? They need us. They need our money. You need to increase the aid budget, not decrease it. We cannot abandon people. It's the whole white saviorism, literally attitude just playing out in this. And I'm saying, you know, you've realized that you've had reports out recently saying that the money you've been spending in aid has really not had that impact that you're looking for. And there are many gaps in implementation, right? Does that not tell you anything that maybe you should look into even the money that you're giving is not making much difference and now you want to just increase it even more? So the idea is how you spend that money. You have 50000 or $100,000 that you're giving. The issue is not that it's 100000 and you can give 500000 The issue is even if that 100000 is well spent, you've done your job. But here the idea is the higher number we will have attached to our country, the more political power we will have globally to say, no, look, we're giving X amount of dollars. And so we need uh, to be on the table. It's not about that. So it's all about political power. So this whole argument that aid must be increased is something I am completely against. Aid actually decreasing is a sign of success. It means you've done your job. The more aid you give, that means you're not, it's not working. I'm sorry. Yeah, but it's a big, like it's an industrial complex, right? And it, it made me think also, and I'm going to get us, I'm going to get to the final segment of the show, The Drop. I'm going to skip off the dome for this week, um, only because we've been, we've been having such a rich conversation. I'm kind of like not going to spend the time on it. Um, but it makes me think about, because it this comes up a little bit in the book, like with the anti-racist movement after George Floyd. And I remember working with organizations that I don't really know how well-intentioned they were, honestly. I think they were just part of the grift. But this comes up a lot in corporate talk here, and at least in the United States. Maybe it's everywhere, right? This idea that, you know, oh, we can, you know, American corporations and industries would be more diverse if only we gave, like, Black people and Latinos, sometimes women but less women, more mentoring, right? More sponsorship. We need to educate these folks about the opportunities and then our organizations will look different, right? Because some poor kid out there who didn't really understand advertising will sit through this webinar on what is advertising and all of a sudden they'll be inspired to have a career on fictionally Madison Avenue. And I would sit there and listen to these people opine on these things. And I'd be like, these people don't need lessons on advertising, <laughs> right? Like they don't need sponsorship. They need to be given like a job. <laughs> right in this in the same way that you give these other jamokes a job you need to give these people a job too right they don't need your extra help they don't need to be put through the paces they don't need a a seminar a workshop and excel what all these things right but i realized that these things were just part of the game right so i'm curious if you also see that 
relationship, right? Like sort of the DEI complex, right? <laughs> the notion that if I just give a seminar, we'll get rid of implicit bias or whatever the stupid thing is. Because again, these things all seem the same to me. Different but similar, right? And then we'll then we'll get to the drop. But I'm curious as to your thoughts on on that whole machine and how that works. Yeah, don't get me started on that machine. <laughs> is that another show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that is just one of my one of my absolute bet. Uh, yeah, DEI it has no meaning. <laughs> Absolutely, it's just like the word decolonization, which is very in. And I started up with that bandwagon too a few years ago, and now I refuse to use the word in anything that I write or say, because they have no meaning. See, I, I had a whole question about that. Oh God, no, no, no! You don't want to get me started on that. <laughs> but, but see, that's going to be a whole nother show. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and I've written tombs on that, and and you know about why I just don't want to go there at all. I mean, there are literally jobs that are now advertised that are, uh, you know, j- just like DEI coordinators or whatever it is, project managers, et cetera. Now you've got decolonization project managers. What does that mean? Of what? You want diversity, equity, and inclusion. These are concepts, they're ideas, they're processes. They're not job descriptions, right? Getting five people of five different colors, ethnicities, and races into your organization is not going to change your organization's way of thinking if you're not, A, going to allow them to have a say at the table, and B, you only do it for window dressing because you are still in power as the white person. So no, I think that is as much of an industrial complex as white saviorism is, as aid is, as the military industrial complex is. It is all to perpetuate power. It is all to keep people in jobs. I mean, the whole idea of aid going down is a threat, not because people will be deprived in other countries of food and water and health and education. It's because your damn NGO is going to go bust. You're the one getting that money in the first stage. You're the one hiring people in your country to manage these projects. And if aid ends, it means your organization is finished and you're out of a job. Fewer lawn parties. So it is all about the money. It is all about how much money benefits you. Whereas the cause itself, nobody even wants to talk about it. So DEI, absolutely not. It makes no difference if your society as a whole is unable to accept the fact that there are differences that we all have to live with. And if we don't want to live with them, there is a governance mechanism at the state that needs to look into this and take care of this. And if it's not going right, then you raise your voice. If it's going right for only one group, you raise your voice. But having positions in DEI and all just makes absolutely no sense. It's a lip service and it's just a show of wealth for corporations and organizations to show that they're doing something. And anti-racism, I think, is exactly the same. You can't have a workshop on anti-racism and think everybody will, you know, know exactly what racism is. And we just saw what happened on a New York subway, you know, a few days ago. So no, anti-racism workshop is not going to fix that. And it sucks because <laughs> I feel like a lot of these folks, and, and this is just going to be an aside, I don't even, like, we talk about intentions, right? <laughs> like, I don't think a lot of these folks have necessarily bad intentions. Some do. Some just want to be like, commentators, right? And they found that's the way to kind of do it, right? If I write the book and it, you know, I kind of do the thing, then boom, I have a whole industry, right? Like it's an industry, right? A job has now been created for me as expert. But I don't know. I just feel like it's all corrupt and muddled, right? Like once folks get their hands on the terminology and the language, then it's really, really hard to keep it in its natural state, right? Because it becomes a business, Terminology is the issue. I mean, people are using the whole issue of language, which which has its importance. I'm not denying that. But people are using it as a distraction from the real issue. Like somebody just put out an entire manual of how the language of development needs to change, you know, how we need to change the wording. At the end of the day, people you are supposedly there to help don't care what you say to them. They want you to come. They want you to deliver. They want you to put that resource in their hands and say, 
tell me if this works and if it doesn't, why doesn't it work and how can you make it better? They don't care what you call them. They really don't care whether you call them mother or father or parent or whatever, right? So these are distractions by organizations that I think this is the only way they can get back at the criticism that is now being leveled at them by people like us, right? And the only way they can do it instead of saying, okay, we're going to step back now because I think we've done enough or we've done enough damage and you take over and let's see how you do. And we're not going to judge you if you if it's not successful, but we need to step back. But they refuse to step back because again, that means they are out of a job. And so they keep creating these new things like language and terminology and how we refer to things and people and places. And it's important. That's the first, uh, you know, that's how we talk about diversity and anti-racism. No, it's not. It's absolutely not. So it is very frustrating, extremely frustrating. Yeah, it's very frustrating for all of us, right? And we we all kind of try to muddle through it. You know, I I feel like we're gonna have to do this again. <laughs> Obviously, we're gonna <laughs> have to we're gonna have to find more time. Because believe me, I I could go down the road of many roads of just that last little section of the conversation. But I'm I'm gonna get to the drop. Okay. And the and the drop is an opportunity for us to share anything at all with the listeners. It doesn't have to be serious and people always feel like the drop has to be this like really impactful thing and i'm like no it could be whatever you want my drop is actually a documentary it's called the pieces i am and it's a documentary on tony morrison it's on netflix here in the united states it might exist on some other streaming channel maybe even youtube but tony morrison is one of my favorite authors she is a, a howard university grad as am i and i haven't mentioned howard university in a long time on the show but i have one particular friend and listener who chastised me for mentioning Howard all the time. So this mention is particularly for you. <laughs> I, I tried to listen to that feedback and not bring up Howard, but I'm bringing up Howard in this moment. Toni Morrison is, in, is an icon. She's an inspiration in many ways. The documentary is awesome introduction to her work to the extent that someone might not be familiar with her. Her books are masterpieces, but I would highly recommend The Song of Solomon, um, which is my personal favorite of her books. But those are my twin drops, a little bit of Toni Morrison, The Pieces I Am, which is a documentary on Netflix, and then The Song of Solomon more specifically, but read anything and all of her work. And that's my drop. And you're up. So you want me to identify something similar? Yeah, no, anything. Anything you think that's important for the my listeners. Okay, this is a tough one. I mean, there's so much that is out there that we have not discovered yet. So we have authors, we have musicians, we have performing artists, we've got artists that exist all over the world, and we don't know who they are. I know who Toni Morrison is because I have been exposed to a Western way of, of education and thinking, but most people in Pakistan won't have any idea who Toni Morrison is. So in the same way, I will talk about a Pakistani who probably people in the other part, in you know, around the world don't know who, who they are. And that Pakistani no longer is also passed away a few years ago, that uh, his name was uh, Maulana Abdul Sattar Idhi. And he was a global humanitarian. He was our Mother Teresa, except everybody knew Mother Teresa. Nobody knew uh, Idi Sahab. And he has he started in the 1950s, soon after partition of India and Pakistan, a voluntary humanitarian organization under his name called the Idi Foundation. And that has grown to be the largest humanitarian organization in Pakistan. And they are family-run and entirely voluntary uh, organization. They run entirely on volunteers and on donations, local and foreign. Uh, they have no support otherwise. Yet they are there at every... There's an accident on the road somewhere in the city of Karachi. They're there. Somebody is homeless. They're in one of their homeless shelters. A woman is uh, a victim of domestic violence. She's in one of their women's shelters. They've got orphanages where people leave abandoned babies in cradles outside their offices all over the cities. They take them and they adopt them and they look after them and then they put them up for adoption. They provide during COVID, they were the ones who were going out providing rations to everybody in the city, people who couldn't afford it, communities in lockdown. They have actually also 
been in the U.S. providing aid uh, to New Orleans during Hurricane Katrina. Oh, awesome. They are at now at that level where they can offer support internationally. They went to Turkey during the earthquake. They were front and center during our floods. But they are the most humble and like they have no fancy offices. They have just rooms that they can find all across the cities. Uh, and people donate warehouses to them and buildings to them so they can set up their own. Or they're, they're the extremely humble and unassuming organization. And to me, that's my drop. That is what I want to see the world like. That is an amazing drop. I'm going to look up more of, of his history and work and their continued work as an organization unfamiliar to me. So I'm, I love when drops can prove that's the purpose, right? To provide something that folks may or may not be familiar with or might want to check out or anything like that. So that's an awesome drop. And, you know, this has been a, a really fun, heavy topic, but a really, really good conversation. And I, and I can't encourage folks enough to check out the book, White Saverism, like, wrestle with the ideas, wrestle with your think, what you think about them, how they make you feel. There's just so much knowledge in the book. The work that you and your co-editors have done, the contributors have done is very, very important. And I'm glad that this is now part of the growing like work and lexicon of people from the so-called global South kind of speaking to and for themselves. It's it's critical, critical work. So I want to thank you, Demri, so much for coming on the deep dive and having this conversation with me. Thank you, Philip. It's been uh, awesome. And there's, like you said, there's just so much to say. And sometimes I end up repeating the same things again and again at every talk or podcast. But the thing is, it's just, it has to get through. You know, the reason you have to say it again and again is that people still are not listening the way they should be. So you do need to keep repeating the same thing again and again. But at some point, I do hope it uh, it has some effect. But thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it. And shout out to my co-editors and all the contributing authors of our book. Do check it out. Thanks very much. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And repetition is key. That's how we learned our ABCs, right? Repetition. <laughs> so it, it, it does work. <laughs> Thanks so much for again for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you, Philip. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.